0: This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. By focusing our, our efforts on these areas, we aim to strengthen evidence in regions where people are most at risk of Lyme disease. We aim to help health professionals with diagnoses and best practices. And we aim to increase Canadians' awareness so that they can take measures to reduce the possibility of getting Lyme disease. All right, well, that from earlier in the week, Federal Health Minister Jane Philpott, as the federal government announced $4 million uh, to establish this research framework, federal framework on Lyme disease. Now, there's some concern that the number of cases has gone up in recent years or that these ticks that spread the disease are showing up in different parts of the country. I mean, another side of the, the, the problem, though, is the issue of false Positives. And we've heard stories in recent years of people who think they have Lyme disease or maybe told that they don't are seeking diagnoses in the United States, being told that they do, or maybe they, they might not. So I, there's that side of it. But uh, I, I, look, I think people need to know what to watch for when it comes to tick bites, when it comes to symptoms of the disease, uh, because it, it can get serious. And there are challenges when it comes to, to diagnosing Lyme disease as well. Well, it's a complicated puzzle. Joining us uh, for some more thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Daniel Gregson, Associate Professor, of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine uh, and Medicine at the University of Calgary, past president of the Association of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease Canada. Dr. Gregson, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thanks you for having me.
0: All right. Well, in terms of uh, this this announcement this week, the additional funding, the research, how important is this?
1: Well, I think this is a, a big step forward for Canada in having a plan and some resources directed to um, increasing our educational efforts, the surveillance efforts, and, and, and treatment for for Lyme disease in Canada. So, um, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, is the problem getting worse? Well, the numbers of Lyme disease in Canada have been increasing um, over the last t- ten years. Um, Uh, It's not alarming numbers, but they are increasing. So uh, to put things in perspective, in 2004, 2005, there were less than 100 cases diagnosed annually in Canada. And uh, things seem to have peaked. But uh, in 2015, 2016, we're running about between 800 and 900 cases per year.
0: Now, can some of that be chalked up to just more awareness that that's something that that doctors are, are looking for?
1: I don't. I think there is actually uh, evidence that there are more ticks and more infected ticks in some parts of Canada than there were previously. So, uh, specifically, um, uh, the coastal areas of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have uh, a higher incidence of 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 infection in humans, as well as sort of some of the areas within southern Ontario. Uh, both on the on the borders of Lake Erie and in uh, around the Ottawa Montreal area, and around Winnipeg in in, in um, Manitoba. Okay. Now we call Sorry, things are are worse now than they were before. Yeah.
0: Okay. And do we know why that might be? Then.
1: Well, there's more uh, uh, ticks, uh, and there's more ticks with brucel infection in in those areas of Canada. Um, there's uh, probably multifactorial. Uh, we've had increasing, um, woodland areas in those regions as we have in Alberta, uh, due to, um, sort of urban, urbanization and movement of people from, from farms to, to, to land, increasing deer populations, probably increasing mouse populations as well. So the, the niche which these ticks live in is probably, uh, better for them now than it was before. Okay.
0: Now it's a bacteria that the, the ticks carry, right?
1: So it's a bacterial infection that the ticks pick up. Um, they don't, uh, get it from their parents, they pick it up when they're alive from either mice or deer usually, and then if uh, a human is bitten after um, the tick has become infected from feeding on a, on a mouse or a deer, then, then a human can become infected as well.
0: And in terms of the number of ticks that, that would happen to be in Canada at any given time, do you have any idea as to what percentage of them might be carrying them? Uh,
1: so that varies from uh, province to province and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, so there are, there are multiple tick species, and so like there are multiple species of, of primates. Um, so there are multiple tick species, all of which are, are relatively unique, and each of which can carry different um, diseases. So um, my, I'm in Alberta, so my, my experience is here in Alberta. We have a predominant form of tick, which is called the dermocenter tick, which constitutes um, over 90% of the ticks that are submitted in, the, in a tick surveillance program, those ticks don't transmit Lyme disease but can transmit other rare infections. Um, and then the ticks that transmit Lyme disease, the Exodia species is a relatively small proportion, and uh, very few of those are actually, uh, so by the time you count down to it, very few of the ticks in Alberta are actually infected with Borrelia burgdorfer, the, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Well, why do we call
0: it a disease then, if it's an infection, essentially?
1: Um, well, initially, it's a long story, <laughs> initially, initially um, there was a group of mothers in Lyme, Connecticut who noticed um, uh, a syndrome in their children consisting of a rash and sore joints. And um, at the time, this is in the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, they were classified as having this weird disease from Lyme, Connecticut, uh, which was localized actually to a specific area in, in, in Lyme, Connecticut. And they sent... Um, uh, some investigators out from the uh, CDC in, in Atlanta had to look at this, and it was determined that it was a specific syndrome or disease, and at that time, there wasn't known what caused it. Um, and it was subsequent to those initial uh, epidemiological investigations that the, the causative agent, Borrelia burgdorferi, at least in North America, was, was identified as a cause of that, those symptoms.
0: Okay. And what puzzles me about it then, when it comes to other bacterial infections, like uh, you know my kids have had strep throat or an ear infection, mm. it's a pretty simple test to determine whether or not that bacteria is present. Why is it so difficult to diagnose Lyme disease?
1: Um, well, Lyme disease is is different from uh, a typical strep throat or urinary tract infection in that What happens is the um, tick bites you, uh, and during the feeding process, Transmits the, uh, the bacteria to the to the human, or if it's a mouse, a mouse, or if it's a deer, a deer. And then, um, you know, in order for the tick, to the the bacteria to survive, it has to be, you know, passed on to another tick, and then passed on to another another um, animal. So the cycle is essentially that the, the infection occurs in the skin, uh, and then spreads. And it's not really um, uh, isolated on the surface of the skin; so it's within the skin itself, and then can spread throughout the body through the bloodstream. Uh, so unlike a strep throat, uh, where I can the bacterial infection is actually localized in your throat, and I can swab your throat and diagnose uh, um, the uh, the bacteria there based on on the, on the number of back, number of bacteria there is is, is relatively easy. With Lyme disease, there's relatively few bacteria within the skin itself, and few bacteria within the bloodstream during dissemination. Um, so that the assays we currently have available uh, aren't uh, Aren't uh, validated for you know testing in blood to be that sensitive. So um, hmm. although you can do tests in blood, it's, they're not as sensitive as as we would like them. Yeah, and that's that hopefully in the early really- stage to detect the bacteria. Right. So wh- the other test we also use for detecting infection is not picking up the bacteria itself, but looking for the immune response by uh, in the human to the infection, and that that immune response takes. You know, a minimum of two weeks to, to start to develop, and probably closer to, to two to six weeks before it's fully developed for us to be able to pick the infection up in, in the blood itself, looking for the antibodies as opposed to looking for the organism. So there's this window period where you have um, a, a bacterial infection that isn't picked up with the antibody test.
0: Okay. So, in terms of, of it going down this path, is, is it enough for someone to say, I, you know, I got bit by a tick, I, I seem to have this bullseye shape? bite on me, or is it more a case of looking for symptoms?
1: Well, for those patients, I guess that's the most common manifestation is a, after being in an area where, where, where um, uh, the infected ticks are common, um, or actually having a documented tick bite, this bullseye rash or rash at the site of, site of the tick bite, so it doesn't have to be, there's so many typical rashes you can see as well. Uh, that it's in and of itself with a good history is, is adequate enough to diagnose Lyme disease. So you don't have to wait for, for a, um, a blood test at that point in time. If you've been in an area where, so if you came to see me and you've been traveling in, in in Nova Scotia, and said, you know, I was hiking in, in um, uh, on one of the coastal parks, and you know I don't remember having a tick bite, but I've got this funny rash." Um, and, and I looked at the rash and it was a typical rash or consistent with, with uh, the rash from Lyme disease. We would just treat you for that with, with antibiotics. Uh, wouldn't wait for the the antibody response, and in fact, the antibiotic treatment might blunt that antibody response. So, in in those cases, it's relatively easy. We treat people with those with those uh, signs um, uh, with antibiotics just based on on that on
0: that rash. Okay, and so the treatment for Lyme disease is antibiotics. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, now, there's the other side of it, though, and I mean, you, you wrote about this a couple of years ago in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, where. There are those who think the problem is far larger than, than health authorities would admit. That it's not a case of having a hundred, or rather hundreds of cases, any given year. That maybe it's in the hundreds of thousands or millions, and people are are going to these U.S. clinics where they're getting diagnosed. So, what, what's going on there?
1: Um, well, there's, there's two issues. Uh, one is that um, there are patients who who have ongoing symptoms, which. They're looking for a solution to their symptoms, and um, they've read on the internet that there's laboratories in the United States that are better, quote, than than laboratories in Canada. So they've gone to to these what are really commercial laboratories in the United States um, for testing. Um, so you know, it's 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 a little bit odd from my perspective because you know when I have patients who who don't believe my diagnosis, I, I offer them referral elsewhere, and, but I would usually refer them to a place like, you know, Toronto, uh, a specialist in Toronto or a specialist in Vancouver or a specialist at the Mayo Clinic or a specialist at um, in Johns Hopkins or wherever, you know. Uh, I wouldn't be sending them to a small office in upstate New York or a small office in downtown San Francisco. Uh, but patients here on the Internet, that these, these, these places offer different testing, and they go there for testing. And... Uh, the, uh, the laboratories are trying to always improve their, 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 you know, what we call ability to pick up disease. But when you sort of tune your test um, uh, improperly, you end up with a lot of false positives. And that appears to be what happens in some labs in the United States. That they using
0: questionable testing methods then?
1: Well, <clears throat> they're, what they're using is is criteria for positivity that's not really accepted as being positive. So. Um, and the major one is, is um, uh, the problem we have is getting false positives with what's called an IGM test. Uh, so that um, uh, that's being used as an, an interpretation that when when the rest of the, all the other testing says negative, just saying this IGM test is positive, and that 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 kind of testing with IGM is fraught with uh, false positives, not just in, in Lyme disease, but with other 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 infections as well
0: right because yeah i mean yeah. There, there's that sense of frustration some people seem to have that you know maybe they have this or they're not getting answers from from the medical system but well, uh, i guess what you're saying is you know we, we need
1: good science yeah definitely definitely and and you know these some of these patients are are um really just looking for relief from their symptoms and,
0: and what are some of those symptoms i mean if if left untreated once it, it, it can progress or become more serious what, what are the more serious side effects or symptoms rather of this
1: um, well, the mo- you sort of talk about common things being common. So uh, after the rash and during an initial infection, people may have a flu-like illness, so fever, sore throat, headaches. Um, those sort of things may occur in the initial part of the infection, too. But later on, um, the most common thing is that the bacterial infection uh, settles down in one of the joints, so you end up with an arthritis. So that's uh, quite common uh, post-infection. Uh, and, though, again, that is treated with antibiotics, and then if you... Um, uh, that's relatively, again, fairly characteristic, and relatively easy to diagnose. Um, there are occasionally people get disseminated rashes where there's rashes, different sort of these, these bullseye rashes all over the body, uh, which uh, some, some people, if they're not aware of it, may misdiagnose as sort of a drug reaction or something else Particularly if patients had antibiotics. Occasionally, the uh, infection gets into the um, lining of the brain um, where and it, patients develop... Uh, what we either nerve weakness from from that, headache from that, and that the nerve weakness can be anywhere in the spinal cord or or in the in the, in the head itself. So, and the most common thing to see is what we call a Bell's palsy or a facial droop, um, but it can just present with with a headache, as well. Uh, what we would call sort of an asept, aseptic meningitis type picture which is relatively not specific because we see it with other viral infections as well, but that's a, a, another common manifestation. Mm-hmm. And then probably the rarest manifestation is a, uh, a heart block, so it's an irregular heart rhythm uh, due to inflammation of the heart itself, um, and that, that is relatively rare.
0: All right, so when it comes to diagnosing, when it comes to, to treating, and I know that those are two of the focuses of this, this federal announcement, does it seem like we're making progress? Do you think five years from now we'll be much further along?
1: That's certainly my hope. I think that's what I was asking for at the federal framework. Yeah. Um, I have no idea exactly what, what the um, the feds are going to fund. Uh, I think we need better surveillance data on um, people who are accessing care outside of Canada and what they're accessing and what diagnostic testing they're accessing and um, uh, what what, what and, and to sort of get an idea of what, what, the, what the actual numbers are, because we, have, we don't have good numbers for that. Um, I mean, if you've been diagnosed in Canada or have been tested in Canada, we know what the, what the diagnostic rates are there. Um, and then um, there, there's uh, the British Columbia is relatively proactive. There's a uh, clinic in, in B.C. which does some um basic science research on patients with persistent symptoms that they attribute to Lyme disease, trying to look for markers that distinguish them from other patients with similar symptoms or um, identify um, uh, an abnormality in either their metabolism or their uh, immune response or uh, their protein responses that distinguishes those those patients from other patients with similar similar symptoms. The hope is that if we can identify what's causing prolonged symptoms, and, and some patients with Lyme disease do have persistent symptoms after treatment. Um, most patients get better after the first uh, 6 to 12 months uh, of treatment, but some patients have prolonged fatigue and cognitive problems um, it, despite treatment, and we don't understand the pathophysiology. We do know that antibiotics, prolonged antibiotics don't go and improve the outcome, um, and, but we do need therapies to, to improve their level of function, and we're not sure what that is. So the hope is we'll, by establishing some clinics similar to what they have in British Columbia, we'll get more um, basic science information and more, more uh, clinical trial information to help, us, help these patients out. Yeah, indeed.
0: Well, Dr. Gregson, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today.
1: Pleasure. Have a great day.
0: You too. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Daniel Gregson, Associate Professor in the Departments of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and the Department of Medicine at the University of Calgary, past president of the Association of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Disease Canada. 403-974-8255 is a number. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.